You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky. Today, we are going to talk about birds, and I have Anna Matthews here, who is the science coordinator for the Oaks and Prairies Joint Venture at the American Bird Conservancy. So, Anna, thank you so much for being here. Um, Can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this line of work? Yeah, thank you for inviting me, by the way. I I really appreciate it. Uh, So, I guess... um, this line of work, I think, I think kind of one of the best places to start to explain kind of how I got into this world and what the heck it is that I do is to take a step back and talk about what the heck a migratory bird joint venture is. Because uh, I'm sure that title, Science Coordinator for the Oaks and Prairies Joint Venture, didn't mean very much to most of the people that might be listening to a podcast like this. And migratory bird joint ventures are actually like one of the most successful examples of bird conservation programs in North America that no one has ever heard of. Uh, so if nothing else today, I hope people will leave like this podcast knowing what a migratory bird joint venture is and how important they are for conservation of bird, birds within North America. So migratory bird joint ventures are these regional partnerships that occur all across North America. They work to conserve habitat for the benefit of birds and other wildlife. Uh, and they were originally established back in the 80s when waterfowl populations were in severe decline. Um, and it was so bad that the federal government developed this North American waterfowl management plan that everyone calls NAWAMP because there's got to be alphabet soup and weird names for all of these different acronyms. Uh, and it was designed to um, implement these strategies that were supposed to bring back waterfowl populations across North America. And the migratory bird joint ventures were supposed to be these regional partnerships across the geography that were actually going to implement these strategies and get that work done. So there are these partnerships of federal agencies, state agencies, nonprofit organizations that are all working together to try to implement these bird population goals within their specific geography. And it worked. Um, Today, wetland and waterfowl populations are one of the only groups in North America um, that are increasing in terms of bird populations or remain static. Basically, all other groups of birds are in decline, um, except for waterfowl and wetlands, and that's largely due to a lot of the work that the joint ventures have done. So it's a conservation success story. Uh, Today, uh, migratory bird joint ventures work on more than just waterfowl. They work on all species of birds. So I help support within those migratory bird joint ventures within my geography, the Oaks and Prairies Joint Venture, which covers Central Texas and Central Oklahoma. I work to support the science that goes into those strategies that we implement to help those bird populations. So I help design the research, the monitoring that answers questions about like, are habitat programs doing what they're supposed to do? You know, how can we be better at habitat management and uh, be more efficient at it and bring back even more birds with the opportunities that we have to do habitat treatments on the ground? You know, how can we learn um, how to be even better at communicating about science, about these programs to landowners and the general public? Um, and all, all kinds of other things. So I really feed into that kind of aspect of these migratory bird joint ventures, specifically here within Central Texas and Oklahoma. So that's what I do. <laughs> so hopefully that gives a better understanding of what the heck it is that I do. 
Um, but I think your original question is, how did I get here, right? <laughs> so, yeah, why birds? <laughs> yeah, why birds? So I grew up in Dallas, um, suburban, born and raised. Uh, I came from a family that didn't do hunting or fishing or camping or hiking or anything like that. Uh, so I ended up getting interested in animals the way that I think most millennial suburban children did. And that was through Animal Planet and Discovery Channel and through going to the zoo, um, going to public parks and things like that. Uh, I love the Crocodile Hunter as a kid. I love Jeff Corwin. I loved like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. That was like my jam. Uh, so that that's kind of my introduction to wildlife and the, the outdoors was through the TV. But, you know, that really kind of fostered an interest in, in wildlife in general and made me ask questions. And um, I thought for a long time I was going to be a marine biologist because I love like snorkeling and being on the reefs. And then I discovered that I have a huge phobia of the open ocean and <laughs> scuba diving. So that kind of went down the drain. Um, until I discovered that there's this wildlife degree uh, that you can get at universities, at, like wildlife biology, sometimes it's called fisheries and wildlife. So I decided, well, that sounds like exactly what I want to do. So I went to the University of Minnesota and got a degree in wildlife biology for my bachelor's up there. It was very cold, um, but I really enjoyed my time there. And that's where I discovered birds. Uh, I took an ornithology class um, and that was kind of all she wrote. Um, I, I just fell in love with birds. They're fascinating. I had a really supportive professor that helped me get some opportunities to help um, in his lab to, to teach about birds um, to undergrads. And I ended up taking a couple of field jobs and I took one field job that kind of set me on this career surveys in southwestern Minnesota. And I just fell in love with grassland landscapes. There's there's nothing quite like standing in the middle of a grassland surrounded by wildflowers. And there's nothing out there except the wind and the birds singing and the grass moving in the wind. It's just amazing. Uh, and that was, that was all she wrote. Um, I ended up going to master's to get a wildlife ecology master's degree where I studied grassland bird densities um, using a data set from the Oaks and Prairies joint venture. So that's how I got involved with the joint ventures and that eventually ended up leading into this position that I hold today. So very long story short, um, I fell in love with birds in college. I did not fall in love with birds as a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, some of us didn't discover nature or a lot of this, you know, stuff that you're talking about until we were older. So I think however you get there, you know, as long as you get there, that's that's what matters. Um, yeah. And I love that you um, pointed out that this was a successful conservation movement because I think, you know, we hear so much about all of the the dangers and all of the dire emergencies happening, especially where you know it relates to biodiversity and extinctions and things. So hearing that we can actually fix it if we just you know have a concerted effort and we we target and do the things that science tells us to do um, is really encouraging. For someone like me who sometimes can get really, you know, bummed out, you know, just hearing the constant barrage of bad news. So I'm glad to know that we are making progress in, in some areas. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what the American Bird Conservancy does? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So American Bird Conservancy really focuses on 
wild bird conservation in the Americas. So we're not just limited to North America. We work all throughout North, Central, and South America. Um, and I think American Bird Conservancy really focuses on results and partnerships. Uh, so we're, we're pretty small. Um, I think just in the past couple of years, we finally passed 100 staff. Uh, so we're a pretty small organization, especially compared to some of the other bird and wildlife conservation organizations. So we really have to rely on partnerships in order to get our work done. So we partner with a lot of state and federal agencies and other nonprofits um, on local levels. Um, like in South America, I know we partner with um, local organizations to develop reserves for uh, critically endangered species. Uh, but we also work in partnerships here within the Americas. We've got a lot of staff that work across different joint ventures um, within American Bird Conservancy. Uh, so we do a lot of habitat work on the ground in North America through those. Um, and we also do a lot of a lot of different work addressing different threats to bird populations. So we have people that work on um, collisions with buildings, uh, people that work on seabird threats, people that work on um, shorebird threats. So we do a little bit of everything, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to doing work that shows results. So doing work that actually changes bird populations and feeds into developing habitat or addressing direct threats to birds. Awesome. So you guys, so it's great to hear that you guys are um, working, I guess, like you said, within all of the Americas, because obviously birds don't know country borders, so no, they no. migrate. Yeah, they migrate all over. Um, so that was one of the questions I had actually um, was, you know, since birds do tend to migrate hundreds or thousands of miles um, over the course of a year, just depending on the season, um, a lot of times it requires international cooperation between countries and states and everything. So how do you guys manage that and what are some of the challenges you face? Yeah, so this is a great example of where partnerships like joint ventures come into play. So like if we take, for example, the Oaks and Prairies joint venture, like I said earlier, we cover like central Texas up into central Oklahoma. And within our geography, uh, during the winter, we are home to a lot of different species of birds that spend their summers breeding up in the northern parts of the U.S. up into Canada. Uh, and then our birds that spend their summers in our geography that, that breed within the Oaks and Prairies joint venture, we have quite a few species that then go in winter down in Mexico, Central America, South America. And on top of that, there's this, there are these flyways that um, birds use during migration. So they will end up, you know, following the, these, the wind patterns essentially to migrate south and then back north again. And Texas happens to be right in the middle of the central flyway, which is a huge migratory pathway for many different species of birds. So we have all of these birds that come through this area that don't necessarily breed or winter here but they might stop during their fall or spring migration to take advantage of some of the habitat that we have so that we they can kind of refuel and rest up for the next leg of the journey. Uh, so we really have to think about, you know, what are we doing within our geography that affects these populations that spend time elsewhere and what's going on in these different areas where, you know, some of the birds might call our area home for part of the year, but you know, these other places that they spend their time, what actions could be going on there that are affecting their populations too. 
So we have this thing called full annual cycle conservation. It's, it's this concept of doing conservation that um, is, is guided by the entire like annual cycle of a bird. So thinking about where it breeds, where it migrates through and where it winters so that we're doing conservation across all aspects of that so that we're taking all of it into account. And that really requires us to partner with all of these groups that work in these different geographies of these um, of these uh, ranges of these bird species, and that crosses geopolitical boundaries. Sometimes, you know, we have species where we're we're lucky enough that you know a lot of their their range is just contained within within the United States, and that makes a lot of that work relatively easy. But we do have species that do crosses international borders. So that's where partnering across those agencies and um, making sure that we have um, uh, plans that we're, we're developing plans across um, our priorities and finding common like limiting factors that we need to address you know, um, ma making sure that we're coordinated in our efforts and that we're not, you know, contradicting each other, each other's efforts and that we're instead complementing each other's efforts is really critical. Um, so I, I think, again, like migratory bird joint ventures are a great example of that. We have to work across those boundaries all the time because our um, partnerships for, you know, directing the, the joint venture and what its priorities are already incorporate a lot of those different partners. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's definitely some challenges, but I think working in those in those partnerships and thinking about that full annual cycle is really, you know, how we're going to get conservation done for these species at the scale that it needs to be done in order to effectively change those population trajectories. Yeah, so why is it important to even, you know, protect birds in the first place? Like, why are they important to the ecosystem? Yeah, so we can talk about why birds are important, and there's there's lots of different examples. Um, I think I think one of the ways that we tend to think about it is we boil it down to you know critical ecosystem services. So they help you know do various things like insect and rodent control. They um, participate in seed dispersal, uh, pollination, like with hummingbirds. Um, they even can be like engineers and architects of you know, different habitats. Um, if you think about like woodpeckers developing like these cavities and, and things like that in, um, in snags and in forests and all of that. Um, and while I think those are all really, really important and show why birds are a critical part of our ecosystems. And, you know, we can directly um, benefit kind of downstream from, from some of those. I think there's also a lot of reasons beyond that why birds are a big deal and why they're important for us. Uh, so like one of the big ones that we tend to talk about is that they're really good indicators of like ecosystem health. Um, birds are one, like really, really easy to identify um, compared to other species. Like if you think about a bird in a tree versus a mouse in a field, which one is easier for you to detect and which one is easier for you to identify with a pair of binoculars? It's going to be the bird. 
They also sing too, and you can identify birds, you know, by their bird song. Um, so they're they're really good species for us to be able to count relatively easily and cheaply compared to other species. And they also respond really quickly to changes in the environment. So because of that, they are a good kind of canary in the coal mine. Um, if we are seeing some kind of change in bird populations, then that indicates that there is some kind of change going on in the ecosystem. Uh, so they're really good um, things that we can use for, for research and science to indicate you know, whether or not our, our conservation efforts are successful. Um, they're also a big part of the economy. Uh, I was looking this up earlier. Um, birds contribute a whopping $40 billion annually in the U.S. And that's through wow. people buying bird seed and binoculars and like birders go on these crazy like birding trips to like South <laughs> Texas and, you know, to Alaska to, you know, get more birds on their checklists. So it's big business. <laughs> yeah, ecotourism. Yeah, and there's like whole, you know, local economies built around that. I mean, like hotel industry and food industries are built around birders um, in some <laughs> locations because other people don't necessarily have a reason to, you know, go to these far flung parts of the United States other than, you know, a bird person that wants to go mm -hmm. find that one crazy <laughs> bird that only shows up in that one place. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's very Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I guess there is something exciting about it. It's almost like um, catching Pokemon, like, you you know. Yeah, yeah. When um, you're going to see when, but if you can claim to that, that one rare bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when, uh, when that, what was it? I think it was like the Pokemon Go app or something like that mm -hmm. came out. It was like, we already do that. We do that with birds. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the, the one last thing that I want to mention, though, about why birds are important, and I think it's the one that people don't think about as often. I mean, we could talk about money, we can talk about ecosystem services, we can talk about science, but I mean, birds are just beautiful and they're interesting and they're fun to watch. They're super charismatic. I mean, they're just... I can't imagine a world that doesn't have birds or bird songs in it. I, I I don't want to imagine a world like that. You know, everyone has a bird story, whether it was when you were feeding ducks in the park or, you know, you had this pigeon like in the middle of like this urban area that you spend a lot of time with and it was doing some kind of crazy behavior. And I think that's like birds are one of the few groups of animals where regardless of where you live, regardless of, you know, like if you live in a skyscraper or you live out in the middle of the country, you have access to birds. So everyone has a bird story. Everyone is able to experience them in some way, shape or form. And they're just, they're super interesting. Um, and I love them. And I think that's perfectly good reason for why they're important too. Yeah, those are all great reasons. And I am 100% that things shouldn't have to matter to humans to be important when it comes to nature and other living creatures, but a lot of people don't think that way. So it is good to have these other reasons to be able to point to, but the overall, I mean, gist of it is, I mean, they are beautiful creatures that share this planet with us and they deserve protection and, and uh, space on the planet just as much as we do. So that alone should be enough, but we know that, you know, there's, there's all these other reasons too, that, that kind of builds the case, um, and services and all that. Um, mm. and yeah, I, I live in a city, uh, in, in Ireland, Galway on <laughs> right on the Atlantic. So we get a lot of, um, 
fearless seagulls and other <laughs> birds that um, are very adapted to human presence. So, you know, they'll just come up and snag your bag in the park or, you know, whatever, just looking for food. So, um, yeah, definitely have those experiences, like you said. <laughs> Yep. Everyone's got a bird story. I haven't met a single person yet that doesn't have one. <laughs> yeah. And they can get vicious. Like when they, when they don't fear humans, man. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's, let's talk a little more about birders because that is an interesting culture that I personally have never partaken in, but I have friends who have, and I actually went to one um, with questions for this podcast. Um, so uh, when it comes to, you know, kind of following the birds, like you said, and it's a form of ecotourism and, and kind of a personal challenge to see how many you can find. A lot of times people will um, use, I don't know whether it's artificial or their own, they'll use, they'll use other means to kind of try to attract the birds. Is that ideal or it, does that kind of mess with the balance of nature when people do things like that? So I think there's been a lot of studies done about bird feeders over the years. Um, it's not something that I, I directly work with um, within my position, so I, I'm certainly not an expert on it. But from what I've seen and what I've experienced, bird feeders can definitely be helpful. Like if we think about the crazy freeze that Texas had a couple of years ago where the entire state shut down because <laughs> none of us had any power. That was a really good example of like where bird feeders are really important. Uh, I was tossing out bird seed like constantly into my backyard while that was going on and it was disappearing faster than I could put it out basically because all of these birds were just so desperate for energy and resources uh, that they couldn't get because it was cold and there was snow everywhere and all of their usual food sources weren't available. Um, so I think if we if we think about it in that context, you know, bird bird feeders and supplemental feeding in that kind of sense can be really beneficial in the face of like extreme drought and extreme winters and things like that. Um, and overall, I don't I don't necessarily think that feeding birds really is that huge of a disruption and our ecosystem, especially if we're thinking in like suburban and urban environments where we've already taken away habitat, um, bird feeders might be providing an opportunity for some of those species to persist. Uh, but again, I'm certainly not an expert um, in all of that. One thing I do want to mention, though, is that uh, bird feeders, I kind of like to think of them as like a buffet for birds, right? So when you go to the buffet, they have like the sneeze guards and all of that, right, around the salad bar and stuff like that. But all it takes is like one person that isn't feeling too good with like dirty hands. And then all of a sudden, everyone that eats the pasta salad that day is sick. <laughs> so bird feeders are kind of mm -hmm. like that. They're a buffet for birds. All it takes is, you know, a couple of sick individuals eating at your bird feeder. And then all of a sudden, all of the birds that come to your bird feeder could potentially be exposed. Um, so diseases like uh, conjunctivitis and house finches or bird pox. Um, when you have bird feeders up, you want to clean them pretty frequently so that you're reducing the possibility of those mm -hmm. diseases being passed um, to other birds that visit your feeders. It's also good, too, to keep an eye on your birds and be prepared to take your feeders down for a little bit if you do start to notice some illness coming up in your in your birds that are visiting your feeders. And then um, mm -hmm. 
I also want to mention that bird feeders are a buffet for predators too. So you really want to think about where you're putting your bird feeders and who you're letting out like into your backyard when birds are your feeders. So, um, you know, unsuspecting birds at a bird feeder are a really great opportunity for like a domestic house cat that is outside to get a, get a nice snack. Um, so we really want to make sure that we're mm. keeping an eye on the animals yeah. that get out around those feeders. <laughs> Yeah, and other critters um, might enjoy you know, like squirrels and things like that. Um, yeah. So I guess placement is probably important as well. So you're not feeding the the other, like you said, the rodents that you don't yeah. want. <laughs> um, yeah. What? So th th that's interesting. I, I never thought about bird feeders as possibly being conduits for for illness, but I mean that makes sense. Like you said, it's basically a buffet. So definitely if you have a bird feeder, it's something to, to think about. And I know like uh for the very brief moment in time when I tried to have a hummingbird feeder in Texas, the advice was to change the feed like every day or two because it got so hot and that yeah. syrupy water could basically turn to alcohol or something. So see we don't want to yeah. make them sick from the things we're giving them either, I guess. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as far as, you know, birders trying to find birds through bird calls or, or something like that, is that something that you think is, um, or making the noises or playing the sound, is that something that you think can be harmful or? Uh, is, so is there not really any playbacks out in the field, um, yeah. to try to draw birds in? Yes, that's actually a really good question. Um, so yeah, you'll see sometimes people using their phone to play a bird song to try to call a bird in so that they can get a closer look at it. Or sometimes you'll see people out in like a, in a park doing this thing called pishing where they make, make this weird sound that is kind of, every bird is a little bit different, but it sounds like kind of a psh, psh sound <laughs> to try to bring birds into them. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I always recommend to people to not play bird songs to draw birds in because you have to think about, you know, what what are you doing to that bird that what, what are you interrupting them from? So, like, for example, if you play a bird song during the breeding season, um, you are that those bird songs are typically territorial songs that the male sings in order to indicate that, hey, this is my area, you know, this is this is my mates over here, like stay away. This is this is where I live and all of you other cardinals. I don't want you anywhere over here. Um, so when you play a bird song like that, um, the local male might think oh, my territory is being invaded. So he'll stop what he's doing and come over and check it out and be all prepared to potentially like chase off this other male. So you're not only interrupting him from defending his territory from actual threats, you're interrupting him from potentially feeding his mate, from feeding his young. You might be inducing some kind of like hormonal response like if you think about it, you know, his adrenaline might be getting up a little bit. So he might be consuming energy um, a little bit faster than, you know, he typically would. Um, so when when you do things like call in birds like that, you have to be really careful about it because you don't want to be interrupting these species from, you know, doing these normal behaviors and potentially inducing some kind of negative effect in them. Uh, and a, a really, really 
especially you don't want to do these with species that are extremely rare or endangered or threatened as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just as a rule of thumb, I, I really encourage people to not do that for any kind of species. You might occasionally see scientists doing it and they're doing it where they've really thought out about exactly how they're going to do it and why they're doing it. They have really, really good reason. But if everyone goes out and starts doing playbacks like that, all of a sudden you have entire populations where that are having behaviors disrupted. So yeah, that's a really good question. I, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> yeah, I um, actually thought about it from listening to another podcast about noise and, and they mentioned um, that specifically for owls, but I thought, well, that has to be an issue with bird call. Because, yeah, like if for nothing else, wouldn't you be annoyed if your day was interrupted because someone was, you know, playing a song and you had you got woken up from your nap or whatever. So even yeah. if you're not interrupting something, you know, like life or death, it's still just annoying. So um, <laughs> let's be good neighbors and not interrupt our avian um, friends. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Just so we can see them and check them off a list. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, though. That's that's really good to know if if people are kind of interested in getting into bird watching or just um, already into it and maybe do that practice. Um, I guess can we talk about some of the biggest threats to bird populations? Obviously, human activity is probably <laughs> responsible for a lot of them, but um, yeah, can you kind of expand on some of the things that you guys see through your work? Yeah, so I can boil it down to, I think, three big ones. And, and like you said, all of them are basically because of people. Um, so habitat loss is the biggest, most immediate threat. Uh, I, I was pulling some numbers earlier, um, and I liked the analogy that they drew. So we've lost more than 290 million acres of grasslands in North America due to conversion to agricultural lands. That translates apparently into 130 Yellowstone National Parks. That's wow. a lot. <laughs> so um, habitat loss due to conversion to agricultural lands is, of course, big, you know, due to conversion to urban and suburban, you know, environments is also really big. But I think one of the ones that we forget about a lot is um, we also experience habitat loss due to suppression of like natural processes in the environment. So for example, if we think about grasslands in Texas, a lot of our grasslands are used as grazing land. And historically, those grasslands would have been maintained by a, a mix of native grazers, so bison, and occasional fires. So most of the grasslands within Texas had to experience fire historically approximately every three years, and that's what helped maintain them. So we've done a lot of suppression of those. We, we don't have bison anymore. We've replaced them with cattle, and we also suppress fire. So we also experience habitat loss within, you know, our, our areas that aren't converted to agriculture or, you know, suburban and urban environments because we've suppressed those and we have things like shrub encroachment occurring on what was historically grasslands. Or we're experiencing invasive species due to putting in grasses that are supposed to be more beneficial for cattle um, and, and other other things like this. Um, I, there's, I think, uh, there was a study that came out a couple years ago um, called the decline of the North American avifauna uh, and this movement called the three billion birds um, initiative kind of came out of it and that study 
uh, estimated that we've lost around 3 billion birds in North America alone across all of these different kind of groups of birds. And grasslands are the ones that, gra grassland birds are the group that showed the most severe and steep declines. 74% um, uh, of all of our grassland bird species in North America are in decline. Um, that's almost 700 million of those 3 billion birds that we've lost. So habitat loss is really like a huge driver. But looming in the future, we also have climate change effects. We're already starting to see some of those due to shifts in some of the range of our bird, bird species uh, and through effects through some of these like extreme weather events, such as that, that winter, um, again, that we had in Texas a couple years ago that was so bad. We had that huge freeze, but also through things like more frequent hurricanes. All of those have the potential to affect our bird populations as well. And, and we do see direct effects on them through, you know, mortality due to due to that freeze or um, due to destruction of coastal habitats from hurricanes, etc. Uh, and then the last big one that I want to mention is just a lack of resources. So in order to change the trajectories of these populations, we have to do a lot of work on private lands and a lot of education. And um, we do have thousands of people out there that work as private lands biologists, that work with landowners to help them understand how they can kind of meet in the middle to meet their agricultural needs, but how they can also meet wildlife needs at the same mm -hmm. time. But we need more people that can do that because we're talking about thousands of biologists that are need to work with millions of private landowners and you know billions of people that we we need to understand um, you know the importance of birds and habitats um, and these are the people that are making policy decisions right mm -hmm. uh, so you know we need we need more money to do that and we need more people to do that so anyone that's listening that's interested in a career you know, with wildlife, we need more private lands biologists and we need we need people that are able to talk to the public about the importance of birds and what they can do to help birds. So um, you could be one of those people that's helping us. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting you, you bring up um, the importance of private lands because my uh, research topic right now is looking at conservation easements and the, the um, challenges, but also the opportunities for um, land conservation through private land ownership. So I think that's, you know, in, in everything I've been reading, you know, ties right into what you're saying. There's a huge opportunity to preserve some of these ecosystems through private lands and through just individual efforts, but obviously collective as well, you know, everybody doing it on their own together. So um, yeah. yeah, that's a great message. And what you said about climate change and habitat loss being threats, those are really um, interconnected, right? Because as climate change gets worse, it kind of leads to that so it's like this feedback loop of just bad stuff yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. that again kind of goes back to human activity so hopefully people will see that connection and you know kind of <laughs> yeah yeah seriously that, that connection between you know climate change and habitat loss to by by doing habitat conservation by making sure that we have lots of habitat for that spe those species that also kind of helps protect us against some of those rain shifts and some of those effects of climate change right because we're building resiliency into these populations so if there's one catastrophic catastrophic weather event you know we don't run the risk of losing the last remaining population of this one species of bird mm -hmm. so that those two really tie together i think 
Um, and I didn't mention these in detail, but I do want to make sure that, you know, people know that there are lots of other threats to mm -hmm. that. You know, some of these other threats might be things that they're people are more able to address in their day-to-day -day lives. And that includes things like bird collisions with windows in urban and suburban areas, you know, the use of pesticides, um, even in your garden. Um, if you have birds, you know, visiting your garden and eating all of your strawberries, you might want to think about not using pesticides on those. Um, you know, in fisheries, overfishing is a really big issue as well, because that, that affects, you know, the, the food sources for seabirds invasive species and domestic cats and even plastics all of those are threats to birds as well so so don't think that the story just ends with climate change and habitat loss yeah. there are lots of other things contributing to can you talk briefly about light pollution and how that can affect um, because i know there, there's been a lot of studies on that and also stories about like for example you know the 9-11 memorial um they had birds getting stuck in that vortex and they had to turn it off for a certain number of hours to kind of let the birds be free because they would just get like hypnotized into the light so yeah can you talk a little bit about how that affects birds as well yeah that's definitely not one of my areas of expertise but i will tell you what i know um and there's definitely other people at american bird conservancy that know a lot more than i do so, so basically, like light pollution, especially like light pollution at night, um, the, the big thing there is a lot of these birds that migrate, they migrate at night. Uh, and a lot of their sense of direction comes from like light from the night sky, right? So when you have a city full of, you know, ambient light coming from skyscrapers, coming from, you know, all of the street lights, things like that, that kind of messes with their ability to navigate. Um, so they might end up getting really confused as they migrate through some of these urban areas. Uh, and that can lead to, you know, building collisions. It can lead to them kind of like getting off track and getting potentially trapped, like you said, in that vortex of light. Uh, so there's actually a lot of initiatives right now to try to get cities to turn off a lot of those lights during the migration period to help reduce some of that confusion and those risks as those birds pass through those urban areas. Uh, so that that's about all that I know about those topics, but there's a lot of resources out there online to kind of help explain exactly what's going on and what you can do even within like your local community or your neighborhood to try to reduce the amount of ambient light that you have going on at night. Yeah, and it actually did an episode on light pollution a couple years ago, episode 13, um, and it, it talks more about more than just birds, but if you're interested in learning more about light pollution, and um, I think it is, uh, of, you know, worthy to note that Texas recently um, was approved a dark sky preserve, uh, like, like one of the largest or the largest dark skies preserves in West Texas a few months mm -hmm. ago out where the Big Bend area is correct. And it's also partnership with Mexico. So that's a pretty cool thing that we have going on in Texas and um, an international agreement even to, to help protect wildlife and dark skies. Yes. Um, oh, let's see, we were talking about threats to birds. Something else that we hear a lot about um, these days are wind turbines. And, and that's actually one of the big arguments against wind power is that they are <laughs> avian murder machines. Um, so what is what what are your thoughts on this and or what does the science 
show, I should say, because I know um, there are, you know, bird deaths that result from this, but um, there's also bird deaths that result from climate change and, and sensibly when wind power will help with that. So uh, how, what is the science? Yeah, so there's a lot that, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot that we're still learning about, you know, wind energy and birds and, and their migratory paths and all of, you know, their, their behaviors and their kind of day-to-day day -day patterns and things like that. Um, I, that that's, again, I, I, do, I do more kind of the, the landscape level kinds of conservation, so I, I don't necessarily work a lot with wind energy specifically, um, and we actually have some staff at ABC that work directly with those kinds of issues. Um, but what I can tell you is that, like you were saying, and we were just talking about earlier, climate change is this huge looming threat and we have to do something about it. And that means that we have to switch away from fossil fuels and we have to utilize renewable energy sources. Wind is a big one of those. Um, I think wind energy in the long term is something that we are going to have to use, but we can be smart about how we use it. Um, we do see mortality um, at wind turbine facilities uh, for birds, and we especially see it for bats. Um, bat bats are pretty negatively affected by wind energy facilities. Um, so we can think about, you know, where are we putting those wind energy plants? You know, where are we putting them right in the middle of a gigantic migratory pathway for birds? Are we putting them in critical habitat where, you know, in order to put up those turbines, you know, we have to put in roads, we have to put in like these pads so that we can, you know, put up those turbines. If we think about those kinds of things before we go into, you know, developing those wind energy facilities, I think that could go a long ways to um, kind of trying to find this, this happy medium between having this renewable energy source, but also, you know, doing, doing bird conservation. Um, and like I said, we're still learning a lot. There's a lot of people that are studying the effects of wind energy facilities on wildlife, including birds and bats. And we're studying a lot about, you know, how birds move and how they migrate um, with the advents of, you know, satellite tracking technology that you can put on a bird. We've learned so much in just the past, you know, 10 to 20 years about migratory movements and, and where birds move through. And same thing with like uh, citizen science data that's collected through platforms like eBird, where, you know, all of those birders that, you know, go nuts about their lists, they can put their lists into eBird and associate with geographic locations. We now have better understandings about, you know, the timing of migrations and exactly kind of where those migrations travel through just through data like that as well, which can kind of help contribute to um, an understanding of where we might want to think about where we put these kinds of facilities so that we don't negatively affect bird populations. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, is with anything else that humans do, you know, we should think about, like you said, how it will affect the specific landscape we're looking at developing. So, um, yeah, just because it's open land and it's windy doesn't mean it's maybe the best location for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> thinking through some of those other nuances, for sure. Um, well, I guess let's kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about, you know, in the work that you do, um, I guess, is there anything um, related specifically to your ability to do your work um, or I, I guess, do you have, is there resistance that you meet or funding or, or any other challenges um, to physically actually do the work? 
I not that I can really think of off the top of my head. You know, I, I think I think that we have a lot of support from, you know, the partners that are involved with the work that we do, ranging from, you know, Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Fish and Wildlife Service and, you know, Audubon and Quail Forever. We we've got a lot of, you know, different agencies and organizations that are all participating and trying to do conservation on this scale. I think I think it just boils down to the sheer scale of the problem that we're trying to address. You know, within within the geography of the Oaks and Prairies Joint Venture, we estimated that we have to restore 3 million acres of grassland habitat in order to reverse the trend of bobwhite, like northern bobwhite decline. And that that's kind of that that species has such a big territory size that if we restore that much grassland, then it'll encompass a lot of the needs of other species as well that are kind of our priority and target species for, for bird conservation in the geography. Three million acres is a lot. Of, it's a lot um, just within that one geography. So, you know, trying to um, find programs that help us do that and then find people to implement those programs, I think is a lot harder than anything else that we do within within the Oaks and Prairies Joint Venture. Um, we have this program called the Grassland Restoration Incentive Program, which works with landowners within kind of select counties to try to help them uh, do habitat treatments on their properties that benefit grassland birds. We never are short of like projects. There's always people that are interested in doing projects with us. I think it's more we don't have the number of biologists like we were talking about earlier to be able to interact with enough landowners right now to, you know, really like move the needle as much as we need to move it in order to reach that three million acre goal. Uh, so, you know, we can do it. We know we know what we need to do <laughs> in order to change those trajectories. It's just do we have the funding and the resources to make that happen? Yeah. So do you think um, you're getting, you know, your industry or your field is getting the support it needs from the government? Um, you know, I know you work at a state level, but from maybe the state and federal government, or is there more that could be done to kind of support the work that you all are doing and other people working on conservation? No, we definitely have, you know, support. Um, the the state wildlife agencies, Texas Parks and Wildlife and Oklahoma Department of Wildlife, they they contribute to that habitat program that I mentioned earlier. You know, they 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 support and help guide the priorities of the joint venture. They're they're both members of the management board of the joint venture, the work that we do. Um, we partner a lot with federal agricultural programs uh, through NRCS. Uh, so a lot of those agricultural programs like EQIP um, and CRP and CSP, I know it's a lot of alphabet soup, but that's like the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, the Conservation Reserve Program, Conservation Stewardship. All of these different agricultural based programs are also being used to the benefit of wildlife. Uh, so I think there's a lot of support out there um, and, you know, certainly from the, the NRCS and, and those agricultural programs, we've got a lot of crossover between, you know, the goals of the state agencies and what we need to do for bird conservation and, and habitat conservation to support those birds. Uh, so there, there's definitely a lot of um, I think overlap um, in the work that we do, and, and we can't we can't do it like the that that joint venture partnership 
it only exists because we have the buy-in and the support mm -hmm. from all of those groups. Well, that's that's good, and that's encouraging to know that it is a priority um, for government as well as the private sector. Um, it just sounds like the biggest issues, as with anything, is funding and, of course, yeah. you know, manpower. So yeah, yeah. Um, well, so it, since you've brought it up a couple times, it sounds like there's kind of a shortage of you know people working in this field. What would be your um, suggestions or advice for someone that may be interested in, in working, whether they're just starting out, you know, going to, to school and want to shift into the, the field? Yeah. So um, if you are just starting out, you know, you're in, in high school still or in the early stages of your college career, we do have degree paths at a lot of different universities for rangeland ecology or wildlife biology or sometimes um, there's like different applied ecology tracks and things like that so i'd really recommend that you look into those degree programs and um you know a lot of what i've talked about is private lands um, and private lands biologists so uh, one thing that we've noticed kind of over the past few years is we have a lot of people like like me that come out of those programs that have a good understanding of you know the ecology of wildlife systems and you know natural history and all of those things but they don't have a lot of experience you know working in rural landscapes they don't have a good understanding of how agriculture works uh, so I think you know if, if you're going to school and you have this goal of being able to work with landowners of being able to be on the ground and actually creating habitat with those landowners for these species it's really important for you to try to take a couple of agriculture classes mm -hmm. or get involved in your community in some way to um, learn about you know some of those rural activities that um, it might be tied into agriculture in some way so maybe getting involved with like your local like rodeo shows or um, even like a, a markets where they're selling cattle and things like that trying to understand you know what are the priorities for those kinds of landowners and you know what are they thinking about because that's what you need to understand as a private lands biologist to go and have conversations with landowners that have those kinds of priorities and show them where you can meet in the middle. Um, so I, I think I think that's one of the big ones that I've seen recently. But also know that, you know, if you're coming into this later in life, there's I, I've met plenty of people that have kind of switched from geography into, you know, rangeland ecology or wildlife biology. I've known some people that have switched from, I think, even like communications into wildlife biology. So I think there's a lot of different avenues, um, but you just might need to kind of go back and, and um, fill in some of those gaps uh, that you might not have had an opportunity to learn about so far. And also don't forget that there's plenty of opportunities to work in urban settings too. So we have urban biologists that work in cities um, through Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, to help um, guide like urban biology programs for conservation and different outreach and education programs as well. So there's lots of opportunities to get involved at a lot of different scales. Yeah, that's great. And um, I would think you're, yeah, like you said, not, maybe if you're not interested in working in this full time, um, there's still things that, that people can do to help. Um, so, so what would you suggest if someone maybe is interested in birds or conservation, but doesn't want to, you know, make it a career, um, how can they kind of help your efforts or, or 
you know, just be a citizen scientist, I guess. Yeah, so um, I mentioned this earlier, there was that Three Billion Birds initiative that came about after the publication came out that said that we'd lost approximately three billion birds in North America. And they actually outline really well, like seven relatively easy actions that, you know, your your average urbanite or suburbanite can do. Um, so we can go through those and then I've got a couple in addition to that. So um, thinking about like what you can do around home, right? So you can try to work within your home to make windows safer for birds. So putting stickers up on your windows, there's all kinds of strategies that you can do to kind of help reduce window collisions. Um, or even like working with your office, if you have an office that's open to doing things like that, that could be a big one as well. Um, working to try to keep your cats indoors um, and find alternative solutions to giving them the kind of outdoor stimulus. There's all kinds of strategies. I actually have a friend that walks her cat on a leash. <laughs> so is there I some the cat loves that. Yeah. <laughs> So there's all kinds of strategies um, to help keep your cats indoors and reduce mortality of birds due to cats. Um, planting more native plants and providing, you know, nesting cover, you know, um, nectar providing plants that pollinators or, or like not only hummingbirds, but other, other, other native pollinators like native bees require. That's another big one. Um, avoiding pesticides, of course. And this is one of my favorites, drinking bird-friendly coffee. Uh, that is a thing, and I'll talk about it more a little bit later, I think. Um, reducing your use of plastics, especially single-use plastics. Uh, but their seventh one that they mentioned is, is one that, that we brought up earlier is, you know, just enjoying birds and sharing what you see. So using platforms like eBird to share sightings that you have of birds, even in your backyard, that's useful data and it's also fun. So just make sure that you enjoy birds and share that enjoyment with other people, whether it's, you know, through keeping a list on an eBird app or, you know, going birding with your friends or just walking through a park and showing your friend, hey, that's a Northern Cardinal. That That's a step in the right direction mm -hmm. too. Um, beyond those seven though, you know, if you do own land, you know, think about working with a wildlife biologist or other experts to try to develop a wildlife management plan um, that incorporates, you know, actions on your property that can be beneficial for, for birds and other wildlife. Um, and of course, don't forget about the power to, of your voice um, within, you know, determining politics, you know, actions within your community, your neighborhoods uh, that might benefit birds as well. So, As you were going through that list and you mentioned um, windows, it made me think of, you know, the numbers that are hundreds of stories tall. I don't know how, how, how high they go, but they're a lot of times nothing but glass. So is that a is that an issue with birds since they're so tall and they are so shiny? I mean, do you get a, do you hear about a lot of birds crashing into those? Yeah, there are actually some uh, groups that I, I can't remember what they're called. I might have to look this up later and see if I can find the link for y'all. Um, they they survey underneath these skyscrapers and collect birds that have died from hitting the skyscrapers. So we actually have 
um, data out there that tells us, you know, the, the amount of mortality that some of these skyscrapers um, cause in some of these bird populations. Kind of like we were talking about light earlier. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that, I think, tends to happen during migration. Um, you know, these birds are flying through and all they see is just a reflection of the sky. So they think it's more sky and they get confused and, and hit the window. Um, but it's not just tall buildings too, like short buildings um, that are like have like walls of glass can also have these kinds of effects. Um, there was something I was looking at uh, before. Um, it's actually like uh, the, the, the reflections of vegetation, things like that, like around your windows and your house or like outside your office window. We have less data just because not as many people are collecting um, data on those kinds of situations. You know, skyscrapers are a relatively easy one to collect data on, but it's also not an insignificant source of mortality as well, I, I believe. Interesting. So many things that you just don't think about until you start talking yeah. about these issues and then you realize, wow, what an impact are things that we just we take for granted have on, on nature in general, not just birds. But yeah. Um, yeah, it makes you kind of wonder how much of it is actually necessary and how much we could do without or. or yeah. Well, so interesting. And I I know I've learned a lot. Um, is there anything else you haven't already talked about that you want to throw out there before we move on to our green life hacks? Um, I think the only thing that I want to throw out there are potentially some resources uh, for anyone yeah. that's interested in getting into birds, if that's okay. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, if you are just like interested in learning more about birds, you, you know nothing or you know very little. I highly recommend that you check out David Attenborough's Life of Birds. It is an amazing series that takes you through like all kinds of crazy behaviors and crazy songs that birds do all across the world. You're going to see birds that you're like, I didn't even realize that that was a possibility. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. And it's I think it's great to get, you know, kids interested as well. Um, I also really recommend that if you're kind of just starting out and you want to learn more about identification or natural history of some of these species, take a look at websites like Cornell's Lab of Ornithology. That's that's a really great resource. And go get yourself a bird book, like a bird identification book. I started with um, the Natural Geographic Field Guide to Birds of North America. That's a really kind of like beginner friendly book. It's not overwhelming, but it has just the right amount of information, I think, and it's set up in a, in a really kind of friendly way. Um, but there's also great apps too. Um, another kind of good one for, for beginners is the Merlin Bird ID app. Uh, and it's got this amazing new feature now. Um, I think it's been out for a little while, but I just discovered it relatively recently. Uh, they basically have Shazam for birds. So you can, yeah, wow. <laughs> you can press a button on this app and it will listen to the bird song around you and it'll start identifying the birds that it's hearing, which is just amazing. It, it uses machine learning and all kinds of cool, like uh, like library resources of recordings that are stored within Cornell uh, to do this, but it, it's just incredible. And it actually is relatively accurate. There's some species where it's not so great, um, but in my experience, it doesn't do a half bad job. 
so yeah, I, I highly recommend you check those out. Um, and then just check out your local bird conservation organizations and, and your, your local, you know, state agencies as well. They put out a lot of resources and they have people that, you know, their job is to work with the community, to work with citizen scientists. So there's all kinds of opportunities to get involved that you might not be aware of, but you just got to do a little bit of digging into some of their websites and resources. Yeah, those are great. And uh, we will link those in the show notes if you're interested in um, following up with any of that. Um, <laughs> you mentioned, you know, the the weird birds out there, and it made me think of when I visited Australia. Um, well, initially, I was just fascinated by all the colorful birds that the lorikeets and all the things that were just everywhere. You know, you didn't even mm -hmm. have to go into a forest, a rainforest. It was just like on a tree in the middle of the city. Um, but the one that I thought was the coolest was the cassowary because it just mm -hmm. looks like a dinosaur. Yes. I know it's a flightless bird, but it was still just like terrifying, but I couldn't stop, you know, like searching for one in the wild. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a, a more local bird that also is very dinosaur-like, too. Um, if you've ever seen a group of wild turkeys running across the field, there is nothing <laughs> that looks more like velociraptors than a turkey running across the field. And you can just kind of see the shape of the body and the head peeking out. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's cool birds, you know, halfway around the world, but yeah, there's some pretty cool ones right here at home that might show up in your backyard too, that have weird behaviors and, um, all of that. Uh, so yeah, Australia, oh my God, the birds there are so amazing. <laughs> yeah, all the animals there, but yeah, I mean, I was just blown away. Um, do you have a favorite bird? Ooh, would you feel that's like taking just one? <laughs> That's like asking a parent to choose a favorite child, I, I think. <laughs> I think. I think my favorite bird changes every day. Mm -hmm. um, but the one that stays consistent, I, I can't I can't choose just one group of bird or, or one specific bird. Um, I'll say that I really like corvids. So that's anything like a crows, ravens, jackdaws, mm -hmm. magpies, jays. Those are all in the corvid family of birds. I love those guys. They're just so incredibly smart. Um, and they have so many interesting like things that they do. They use tools. There's some species of, of those birds that use tools, which is just incredible to me. And, and the problem solving skills are just amazing. Um, but something that's a little bit more relevant to the work that I do um, and, and something else I'd like to mention is um, I really, I really like sparrows. So sparrows are your typical like little brown bird that no one knows how to identify because it just looks like a little brown bird. <laughs> but there actually are there some really, really cool sparrows out there. Um, for example, the Cassin sparrow is amazing. They they look super boring. They're they're like one of the most boring sparrows to look at, and sparrows are already kind of boring to look at because they're a little brown bird. But they have this really cool behavior where they do this thing called skylarking. So they'll fly up into the sky and they'll reach a point where they almost seem to like hang for a moment. And then as they kind of slowly descend and like flutter down on their wings, they'll they'll sing their song. And it's just yeah. incredible. But unless you're paying attention to those little brown birds, you might never know about those kinds of things. So yeah. I think I think the corvids and then some of those like lesser known but little brown birds are my favorite ones today. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow it'll it'll change. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> wow. So thank you again for all this information. Um, you've given 
lot to think about. Um, I guess let's go ahead and move on to our green life hack. And this is the part of the show where we share um, one thing that listeners can do to kind of help them live more sustainably, maybe reduce their carbon footprint. So would you like to go first, Anna? Yeah, so I've got I've got kind of one thing, but they're technically two. So apologies, I couldn't I can't pick a favorite bird. I can't pick a favorite life hack. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> um, so one of them, I actually mentioned this earlier, is one of like the seven things that the bird, Three Billion Birds Initiative recommended. Um, bird friendly coffee. So I'm one of those people. I'm I'm I really struggle to do like gardening or thrifting or things like that. So um, if you're like me, bird-friendly coffee, thinking about, you know, what you're buying at the grocery store is, you know, one, one way to kind of think about how you can live a little bit more greener. So bird-friendly coffee is a certification program through the Smithsonian that is, um, those certifications are given to coffee producers that um, promote doing um, like coffee plantations that have a mix of different like foliage covers and vegetation heights and other things that promote bird diversity. So it's not just, you know, like only coffee plants. They have other plants mixed in that um, support, you know, diverse bird populations. And then along with that, there's this other program called Conservation Ranching within Audubon that um, gives landowners a bird bird-friendly beef like certification for the beef that they produce on their property. Um, so they can get the certification through doing like good grassland stewardship practices on their on their ranches. Um, and if they go through this approval process with Audubon and meet you know some certain requirements, they can get this certification for bird-friendly beef. So you know, if you want to buy beef at the store, that's a little bit more, you know, like conservation minded and, and do, like comes from places that are doing good practices for birds. That's an mm -hmm. option for you. Um, it can be a little bit hard to find, but I believe their website should indicate like where where retailers are for that that product. Yeah, I had heard of, of course, like Rainforest Alliance Coffee. But I've never heard of bird-friendly coffee, so that's good to know um, for our coffee drinkers out there. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I'm gonna just kind of echo one of the things you said earlier for my green life hack, which is to plant um, native plants that will support your local bird population. So maybe look up what some of the birds in your area are, or what there should be. Maybe they aren't because there's no um, habitat for them, and kind of try to go to a local nursery and plant something and support that population. Um, a lot of times you can also, I think in Texas, contact like your, your local, um, you know, AgriLife extension or something similar, depending on the state or the region you're in. So there's usually plenty of information out there. Um, your, your local master gardeners or naturalists could probably help you out too, um, or, you know, Google. <laughs> but yeah, I would say just try to make your, your landscape more bird friendly if you can. Um, so that's my green life hack. <laughs> oh, I like um, it. <laughs> yeah. So um, where can we find you and or the American or yeah, the American Bird Conservancy online? <laughs> so yeah. So I am not personally a big social media person, but you can find me on LinkedIn. So you're welcome to to find me there uh, and reach out to me if you have questions or anything like that. 
Um, for American Bird Conservancy, you can find us on our website. We also have a lot of different social media platforms um, that, that we uh, interact with um, through American Bird Conservancy as well. Uh, so um, check us out there. And the last website that I'd, I'd like to kind of plug um, and make sure that you're aware of is the Migratory Bird Joint Venture website. It's mbjv.org. And this is a website where you can go to to find out more about the work that the joint ventures do. So remember, there's a migratory bird joint venture wherever you live within the United States and within the majority of Canada and Mexico. So I highly encourage you to find out, you know, who is your local migratory bird joint venture? And they should have maps on that website to help you figure that out. And then go and see kind of what work they're doing. You know, who are they partnering with? What are their projects? And that might be a good way to kind of figure out what you might be able to do within your area uh, to help contribute to bird conservation as well. Awesome. Yeah, um, and the American Bird Conservancy is a nonprofit. So if folks want to donate or volunteer, I'm assuming they can also do that through the website, correct? Yes, exactly. Yep, we are a nonprofit, um, and we do end up um, a, a lot of the the uh, donations that we receive uh, from individuals goes directly to addressing uh, habitat issues and threats and doing doing habitat projects on the ground. Uh, so yes, um, there there are certainly plenty of opportunities to get involved um, through donations and also opportunities to get engaged in other ways with the American Bird Conservancy. Okay, great. Um, you can find me personally here on Sustainably Geeky, occasionally on Marginally Geeky, our sister show, and then our parent show, Ethically Geeky. Um, and you can find me as well on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. Um, I can, or you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as pretty much any podcast uh, site that you use. So please check us out, subscribe. Um, and if you have any ideas for future topics or guests, um, feel free to send those our way through our website or through social media. Um, Anna, again, thank you so much for being on. And um, for everyone listening, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.